right, so these are certainly scary times. Uh, don't need to convince anybody of that, I'm sure. We don't know enough. We, as in even the experts, don't know enough about this threat yet to be confident about all the, the right paths. Um, we just heard this week, finally, that masks should be worn. Um, that advice has changed now. Uh, we don't know what the death toll is going to be when all is said and done. We don't know if our health system is going to manage or it's going to collapse, you know, wherever we live in the United States. We don't know how many doctors and nurses are going to die. How long is it going to take for a vaccination to be developed and approved and deployed? We don't know how long all this is going to last. Are we going to have to navigate multiple waves of the coronavirus threat for the next two or three years? What is all the, this going to mean for older folks? Are they going to spend the remainder of their days in isolation? So Bethel family, we all ought to be concerned about that. Even if you're young and maybe the, the risk factor is relatively low for you, you ought to be concerned about all of your neighbors. We ought to be loving our neighbors as ourselves if we were in that situation. So especially our vulnerable brothers and sisters, let's be concerned about caring about, thinking about um, what they are going through. We also don't know the depth of the economic impact of all of this. Are we heading into a Great Depression that's going to last for the next couple years? We don't know if we're going to get the virus and if we do, is it going to be mild or severe? We don't know if we're going to die of this virus. So, Pastor Tyler read the passage that we're going to study this morning. It turns out this is, you know, was scheduled for this morning um, a long time ago. Uh, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew's, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Um, and we've been taking it a section each week, and how kind of God to plan for this to be our text for this morning. So I don't know what all, all of what God is doing, but I do know a few things. I know that God wants reality to become more real to each and every one of us. So what do I mean by that? Well, we're all going to die, right? That is reality inescapable, unavoidable reality. We all live on the brink of eternity. That's also reality. But how real is that to you and I on a daily basis normally? The older you are, maybe that becomes more and more real to you. You think about it more often. It can become more real to you if you have a loved one who dies or a friend or a coworker, maybe especially if they're about your age. It can become more real to you when you attend a funeral. Although sadly, even that is not going to be normal these days. So nothing makes the reality of death more real than a truly life-threatening situation or condition. Samuel Johnson famously said, Depend upon it, sir, when a man knows he is to be hanged in a fortnight, it concentrates his mind wonderfully. So maybe you've experienced this. Some suffering comes into your life, and all of a sudden, so many more of the Psalms are really 
real and comforting to you because the psalmists suffered so much and they wrote about it. So it's one thing to understand what they're saying. It's another thing to resonate with it in your own experience. It becomes more real to you. So I want you to listen to this well-known question and answer from the Heidelberg Catechism as we think about those thoughts of God wanting reality to become more real to us in these days. So it's question number one from the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only hope in life and in death? And here's the answer. It's a paragraph, but every word matters. It's so substantial and meaningful. So pay attention to the words. What is your only hope in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has paid, he has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. So, I don't know, maybe some of you learned that when you were a kid. And maybe it was like in one ear, out the other. You could repeat the words, but it, it didn't mean much to you. It wasn't that real because so many of those realities, you know, you can just be blissfully oblivious as a child. But man, when, you're, when we're facing threatening circumstances, this is so real and so sweet. So is this any more real to you right now? God wants to make these great, glorious, soul-securing realities real to us. And I don't know if this is the case with any of you that are watching right now. If these things are not real, if you don't know your sin fully paid for by Jesus and you're still trying to atone for your own sins, you're still scrambling and you're anxious because of guilt and, and a guilty conscience and you lay your head on the pillow and anxiety can be, you know, filling your mind and heart not just because you're not sure where your paycheck's going to come from, but I don't know what's going to happen when I die and you're afraid of the threat of a virus because there are ultimate fears well, guess what? You can ask Jesus right now to make his grace and salvation real to you. And he can save you right now on the spot. He can fully pay for your sins with his precious blood. And just ask him. Stop trying to atone for your own sins. Turn from your sin. Repent. Turn away from trying to be the master of your own fate and follow Jesus. But wherever we're at this morning, God wants to make the reality of his glorious person, his fatherhood, his care for us, and the fact that he is our Savior through Jesus, real to us 
to secure us in the face of anxious circumstances. So, Matthew 6, 25 to 34. You probably saw it. If you've printed out the sheet that I um, laid out, it's really so that you can meditate on the flow of thought. You can maybe take this piece of paper on a walk with you and just meditate on what Jesus is saying here. Maybe write insights down. Uh, preach this truth to your own heart. But you can see that the main point is don't be anxious. It's in the yellow highlight if you've got the sheet printed out. Five times it's repeated in these verses. So have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus commands his people not to be anxious? <laughs> he says, if you're going to follow me, I don't want you to worry and fret. Does that sound like a heavy burden to you? Or do you realize that that's an incredible kindness? Like, wait a second. If you're going to tell me to do that, you better be backing that up with some serious grace and truth and promises. And that's exactly what he does here. I'm such a good master. I'm such a good Lord. Your heavenly Father is so good and gracious that you don't have to worry. <laughs> so this is not intended to be this heavy, burdensome command. It's intended to free us and fill us with security. What kind of master would command his servants not to be anxious? Good, good master. So, um, in these verses, Jesus is building a case. He is just piling reason upon reason why certain kinds of anxiety are unnecessary in the life of a Christian. So we're going to walk down through the text, take a look at all the reasons that Jesus gives for why we shouldn't worry and be anxious. Okay, but first off, we see that this thing starts with therefore. Verse 25. So what's the therefore, therefore? We've got to note the little connect, contextual connection. Last week, we looked at Matthew 6, 19 to 24. And this section is running right on the heels of that. The flow of thought goes something like this. You can't serve two masters. You're either going to serve God or money. So fixating on material things laying up treasures on earth is one of the ways that we serve money rather than God. And another way to test where your heart is is where is your anxiety? So listen to the insightful words from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, British preacher, actually medical doctor, and then became a preacher um, from last century. He wrote this, We are reminded here once more of the terrible subtlety of Satan and of sin. It does not matter very much to Satan what form sin takes as long as he succeeds in his ultimate objective. It is immaterial to him whether you are laying up treasures on earth or worrying about earthly things. All he is concerned about is that your mind should be on them and not on God. And he will assail and attack you from every direction. You may think you've won this great battle against Satan because you conquered him when he came in the front door and talked to you about laying up treasures on earth. But before you were aware of it, you will find he has come in through the back door and is causing you to have anxious concern about these things. He is still making you look at them and so is perfectly content. So important to notice that contextual 
link. We'll come back to it a little bit later. But there's two main points. Again, there's an outline. Um, Don't be anxious about your life, your body, or tomorrow. Instead, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Those are the two main points, and really they're two sides of the same coin. Okay? So first point, don't be anxious about your life or your body. And we begin to see these reasons that Jesus piles up um, graciously for us. So don't be anxious about your life, your body, tomorrow. And then Jesus gives all these gracious um, command, or reasons why uh, not to be anxious. So he could have just said, don't be anxious because I said so. But he's not a cruel taskmaster. He doesn't say, what's wrong with you? Like, stop worrying already. He gives us not one reason, but six reasons to be anxious that we're going to look at here. And you can see them there on your outline. So the first one is, found in verse 25, because life is so much more than these. Food, drink, and clothes. Look at verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So Jesus says there are two things here not to be anxious about, your life and your body, and he unpacks your life with what you eat and drink. He unpacks your body with what you wear. So first, don't be anxious about your life, what you're going to eat and drink. And the reason he gives is found in the end of verse, verse 25, is not life more than food. So the point is that food and drink are not the sum total of life, not the central purposes of life. No, food and drink Good gifts from God. They sustain our bodies so that we can get on with life. But, I mean, how many of us can fall into this, like, living to eat? (laughs) I think sometimes I like to exercise so that I can eat more. Um, I mean, how many of you see this tendency in your own soul? How many people are consumed by dieting? It's kind of a Maybe pun intended there. How many people love, we could even say, are addicted to cooking shows? We can become foodies again. That's not all bad. But we can really become preoccupied and fixated on these things. And sometimes we've got nothing to talk about but the food. Maybe that's an indication that we're too preoccupied with those things. So imagine a man who's got good old John Deere tractor. That's his pride and joy. He loves to make sure that thing is running, just, just humming. And he's a little bit obsessive about it. And he ends up becoming so obsessive that he turns into a gasoline connoisseur on behalf of his tractor. And he's trying out different octane levels and spends hours in his garage just kind of listening to the engine and evaluating how rough and how smooth it runs on various sorts of gasoline. And, you know, he obtains special gasoline from various sources, and all the while his lawn is turning into a jungle. The tractor was built to cut grass, not consume gas. That rhymed. Um, Didn't even intend intend that. So the point is, you and I were built. In fact, as Christians, we were rebuilt, reborn, given new life, 
in order to follow Jesus and seek first his kingdom and not just merely consume kingdom resources. So do you see the parallel? See the folly of worrying about your life, being preoccupied there. So category one, don't worry about your life, what you're going to eat or drink. Category two, don't worry about your body, what you're going to wear. You see it with the blue font there. If you're looking at the uh, text layout that I provided. So why should we not worry about our bodies? What we put on, what we wear. Because the body is more than clothes. Your body is not there for the sake of clothes. It's the other way around. The clothes are to serve your body. You are not a mannequin. Your clothes are supposed to serve your body so that your body can get on with life, with glorifying God. So seeking first his kingdom, hallowing his name, doing his will on earth. That's life. And yet it is so easy to get this thing turned around. And Jesus knows that. That's why he's talking to us this way. That's why he's training us, training his, his disciples to follow him in the path of righteousness, to get our values straight. Other biblical writers teach and train in the same way. So Paul in Romans 13, 14 says, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we want people to see when they see us, is the character of Christ on us. Like they would see clothes. Or 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord said to Samuel, he had to correct his prophet, rebuke him and say, whoa, 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 whoa. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. That's what really matters. Or Proverbs 31, 30. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, meaning it's fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. She is truly beautiful with a lasting beauty. So that's reason number one. Life is more than food and drink and clothes. They are not the point of life. They are there to help us get on with the point of life. Good gifts. We don't have to, you know, just eat gruel and wear burlap. Okay? But it's a matter of preoccupation and fixation and focus. They're not big enough. They're not important enough to be preoccupied like that. Second reason found in verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? So argument from the lesser to the greater. If God feeds the birds, then of course God is going to feed his children. God feeds the birds. <laughs> like, and we are anxious about whether he's going to feed us. Sam Storms uh, comments that being anxious about our life is tantamount to behaving as if we were spiritual orphans. But wait a second. Like, if you're a Christian, you've been adopted into God's family. He is your heavenly father. Jesus taught his disciples to pray this way. How does the prayer begin? Our Father in heaven. Don't forget, like that's exactly where you ought to start. Is the goodness, the love of your heavenly Father for you. You're not an orphan if you're a Christian. An existential orphan. You don't have to scramble to survive on your own. You don't have to freak out and be anxious. 
you have a heavenly father and he's going to take care of you. It's just easy to become like a practical naturalist as if there is no God. I mean, we don't baldly say, I'm not sure if he's going to feed me. But sometimes functionally, that's how we act. That's what our worry and anxiety betrays. So it's easy to divorce God's presence and goodness from the details of life. And no wonder we worry about the details of life. We don't believe God is concerned about those things, but he is. So are you worried about your life? Here's the command from Jesus. Go take a walk today. (laughs) Or you can just look out your window if you can't do that. And I mean, seriously, take this passage out, bring a pen and go take a walk. And let nature help you trust God. Just like what Jesus is doing here. Are you worried about your life? Go and look. Look at the birds. I mean, even in the midst of a pandemic, thankfully, that's something that almost all of us can do. And it would be good for all of us to do if we can do it. Though there are a few of us, which this weighs on me heavily, and I'm, you know, there are some folks that are just confined and contained within their room. Thankfully, they have a window they can look out and see the birds, but um, for most of us, we can go out and look at the birds of the air. I was doing that this week, and it was just so encouraging to, yeah, see this passage played out. So um, Anne Frank, the diary of Anne Frank, she was in forced quarantine, confinement for two years due to the spread of something else that was deadly, not Nazi ideology, She wrote this in her famous diary. The best remedy for those who are afraid, lonely, or unhappy is to go outside. Somewhere where they can be quite alone with the heavens, nature, and God. For then, and only then, can you feel that everything is as it should be and that God wants people to be happy amid nature's beauty and simplicity. I firmly believe that nature can bring comfort to all who suffer. So, good word from... And Frank. And it's spring. The world is being reborn. Like, what an illustration of the hope that we have. How fitting to do this the week before Easter. Martin Luther kind of underlines the point when he said this You see, God is making the birds our schoolmasters and teachers. It is a great and abiding disgrace to us that in the gospel a helpless sparrow should become a theologian and a preacher to the wisest of men. Whenever you listen to a nightingale, therefore you are listening to an excellent preacher. It is as if he were saying, I prefer to be in the Lord's kitchen. He has made heaven and earth and he himself is the cook and the host. Every day he feeds and nourishes innumerable birds out of his hand. Or one more illustration. You may have heard this poem. It's a little bit quaint, but it's also a little too true. So it goes like this. Said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. Well, we do have a heavenly father. And so we can allow our consideration of the birds to strengthen our faith. 
If God feeds the birds, he will feed his children. Reason number three, it doesn't do any good. (laughs) Don't be anxious because it's not going to do you any good. Verse 27, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? It's it's obvious you're not going to save any life. You're not going to gain any life by worrying about your life. In fact, it's not just futile. You know, you're not going to even add an hour to your life. It's not going to increase the quality of your life. It's actually counterproductive. So you can really only waste your life by worry. Higher blood pressure. It can even make you kind of move away from people, become more isolated. It can go hand in hand with depression. So Jesus is graciously appealing to us. He's marshalling this multifaceted kind of cumulative case against anxiety because he's for us, because he loves us. So I wonder, I wonder if you've learned to speak to your soul and to encourage other people with the voice of Jesus, with the way that Jesus speaks to our souls. Jesus doesn't browbeat us here. Do you browbeat yourself? Like when anxiety gets kicked up, do you just, oh, I'm just, uh, you know, and you just beat yourself up? Or do you browbeat others? Jesus is counseling us here. He's teaching us to counsel others here. Notice he doesn't just say, don't be anxious. You just need to trust God. I think that's sometimes how we talk to each other. That's true. We do need to trust God, but we don't need to just trust God as if, oh, it's just like a late switch, you know? No, Jesus gives all kinds of reasons. He graciously, kindly helps us. And that's how we ought to speak to our own hearts in the midst of our anxiety when it gets, when it bubbles up. That's how we ought to minister to those around us when it gets kicked up in their lives as well. So he gets creative here and talks about birds and lifespan and now flowers. Look at the fourth reason, botany and belief, verses 28 to 30. Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Again, argument from the lesser to the greater. If God clothes the grass, the flowers, he's going to clothe his children. What beauty God invests in these, you know, plants, flowers that are here today, gone tomorrow. Flowers come and go so quickly. We have a magnolia tree in our front yard and it just blooms super fast in the spring. You know, all these pink petals, they're raining down like, you know, and the smell is so fragrant, but it only lasts a couple weeks. You know, you people with green thumb could multiply examples of other, you know, beautiful bushes and flowers that, um, like even our neighbor, hey, why don't you take some of these tulips because they're going to die soon. Um, It just happens quickly. So if God does that, investing so much beauty in something that lasts, you know, such a short time, how much more will he clothe us, his beloved children, who will live on this earth, most likely, the, the, 
the time span of hundreds of flower lifespans. But even more than that, for whom he sent his son to die so that we could live with him forever. So brothers and sisters, consider this. Do some theology from your ornithology and your botany for the sake of strengthening your faith. God feeds the birds. God clothes grass. Look, consider, and trust. Let it bolster your faith. Don't miss the end of this illustration. Oh, you of little faith. There at the end of verse 30. It's all a faith issue. What we're anxious about or not, it's all a faith issue. So the contrast down in verse 32 is between Jesus' disciples, believers, and Gentiles. That's shorthand for unbelievers, people that are not trusting God, not trusting Jesus. Gentiles don't know God. They don't know it's his world and that he's the one who provides food for the birds, beauty for the flowers, necessities for his people. They don't believe those things. No wonder they seek after them and are preoccupied with them and, you know, freaked out if they're threatened. This should not be the case with Jesus' disciples. We should have a different preoccupation. And we'll see that in a few minutes. It's seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. But again, remember this comes on the heels of verses 19 to 24. See, we can think, if I lay up treasure in heaven, if I'm generous, what if? What if? What if? Again, that's unbelief. We're fearful. Like, is God really going to provide if I actually seek first the kingdom and put my money where my mouth is? Jesus says, yeah, what if? What if there's a heavenly father who knows what you need and takes care of every sparrow on the face of the earth and you're way more valuable to him than the birds? That's a more important what if, which leads to the fifth reason. Your heavenly father knows what you need. Look in verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. So, verse 31, reiteration of the main point. Don't be anxious. More reasons why to follow. So Jesus isn't simply addressing anxiety about potential starvation or nakedness. He's addressing all of us for whom these things are unnecessarily central. So what are you seeking? What are you preoccupied with? is what he's after. Is this where my life consists? Am I too caught up with and concerned about these things? Do I value them more than they're worth? So D.A. Carson wrote this. He writes, he wrote, uh, our worries must not sound like the worries of the world. When the Christian is short of money, even for the essentials, does he complain with the same tone, the same words, the same attitude as those around him? away with secular thinking. The follower of Jesus will be concerned to have a distinctive lifestyle, one that's characterized by values and perspectives so unpagan that his life and conduct are, as it were, stamped all over with the words, made in the kingdom of God. So we shouldn't live as if we don't have a heavenly father. We do have a heavenly father, and he knows what we need. 
So we don't have to fret like people that don't know God, that don't have a heavenly father. He's not indifferent. He's not too busy. He's not powerless. His resources are unlimited. The question is, do we believe that? So faith in the character and promises of our Heavenly Father is what this is all about. And that faith in His good character and promises frees us to be concerned about other things, the things that really matter. I mean, you can imagine like a middle school boy with a super mom as his mom. And let's say she's obviously faithful to purchase and launder and fold his clothes. And he should put them away and maybe fold them as well. She buys the groceries, prepares the meals, etc. I mean, can you imagine this boy just constantly wasting his time and energy, worrying, you know, what am I going to wear? Like, is there going to be food on the table in the morning? I mean, her track record ought to be enough, let alone her character. And yet he's worrying here. It would be a tremendous waste of life. And that's the point here for us with our Heavenly Father. Now, let me just make a few quick qualifications of what this doesn't mean before we hit the last reason, number six, and then move on to seeking first his kingdom and righteousness. Jesus is not prohibiting forethought and planning. Okay? The Bible commends wise planning and saving and providing for one's family. Jesus is prohibiting anxious thoughts, not forethought. Jesus is also not encouraging freeloading. He's not promoting passivity or laziness. You know what? Birds dig for worms and, you know, peck around for seeds. And ultimately, their, fa- their creator, our father, is feeding them. So there's a difference between working and worrying, faith-filled labor, and anxious toil. So it also says in the Bible, if anyone will not work, let him not eat. I thought that was just my nunny's wisdom, my Italian grandma's wisdom, but then I realized it was in the Bible. Second um, Thessalonians 3.10. So Jesus is not encouraging freeloading. And then final qualification, Jesus is not undercutting the need for us to provide for others in need. Oh, you know, his or her father will provide for him. That's like saying be warm and, and filled, you know, just, yeah. No, God, God often feeds and clothes his needy children through his children. Okay? So just those few qualifications. Final reason here, number 6, verse 34. And then we'll come back to verses 32 and 33. Last reason not to be anxious, you've got enough to do today. Verse 34. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So again, main point reiterated again, don't be anxious. And again, Jesus doesn't say, because I said so. He gives us more reasons. He says, let tomorrow worry about itself. God gives you grace one day at a time. God gives you today's grace for today's needs. You've got enough to do today. Don't waste today's grace on tomorrow's hypothetical trouble. Or you won't be any good for today or tomorrow. So anxiety about tomorrow is going to neutralize your effectiveness today. So wait for tomorrow's grace for tomorrow's issues. 
His mercies are new every morning. His faithfulness is great. There's going to be fresh mercy right there waiting for you when you wake up tomorrow morning to handle tomorrow's needs and troubles. Sam Storm says it this way, believe that God will be God when you wake up tomorrow morning. So there's no need to bring imaginary trouble from tomorrow into today. We respond to real need and real trouble with real grace, in real faith, in real time, rather than worrying about potential or imagined trouble and wasting today's grace in unbelief. We need to be concerned with, preoccupied by God's kingdom and his righteousness today. That's going to keep us busy enough. And again, this doesn't mean we don't think ahead, plan ahead. Just like there's a difference between wise saving and fearful stockpiling, we should save out of wisdom and love, even so that we have enough to share. We shouldn't stockpile out of fear. And then a quick little transitional word before we get to um, seeking first the kingdom and its righteousness. If you're looking at the outline, it says, when the wise are the house. What in the world do I mean by that? So when you're anxious about your life, how can you not be anxious? Like, how do we do this? But do you see that the whys are actually how? All these reasons why are how you can drive away anxiety and trust God and follow him in paths of righteousness. You take all these whys, the reasons that you have, and you preach them to yourself. And in that way, the wise become the house, the empowerment, the ability to not be anxious, but to spend your life well in what really matters. It's application. I love what Brad, Brad Hambrick says. Um, he wrote an article that I read this week called Sorting Through Our COVID Anxieties. And he said this, replace what if with even if. And identify the relevant attributes of God that would be relevant. For example, instead of thinking, what if I lose my job? Replace that with, even if I lose my job, God will still be faithful. That's really helpful. I, I would encourage you to write that one down. And let's practice that this week. When the what ifs start to, you know, fly in, replace them with even if. Even if this happens, what's true? What can I remind myself of the character and promises of God to drive away that anxiety and to walk through this day in faith, trusting God? So all that is what not to do. Don't be anxious about your life, your body, tomorrow. But Jesus doesn't want us to simply stop being anxious. He wants us positively to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. So this is the positive way to make the same point. And do you see how being anxious and what you seek are related? They're like parallel expressions. So Jesus actually wants to get our anxiety in the right place. He wants us to be concerned about his kingdom and his righteousness. He wants us to seek those things. So people that don't know God seek anxiously after material security. God wants us to trust that he'll take care of our material security, and he wants us to seek first his kingdom. He wants us to be preoccupied with his kingdom and his righteousness. The goal is not to 
just not be anxious, you know, to live in some sort of anxiety-free neutral zone, you know, this carefree comfort zone, you know, spiritual no man's land, some zen, you know, like stoic thing. No, he wants us to proactively seek and prioritize his kingdom and his righteousness. So what does that mean? What does it mean to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness? Well, the kingdom of God in the Gospels refers to the rule and reign of God. Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. The king is here. And one day, every knee is going to bow and every tongue confess. Every knee will be forced to bow. But there's a gospel of the kingdom because you can lay down your arms and transfer your allegiance rather than fighting against God in your sin you can be on God's team (laughs) he declares amnesty so it's the gospel of the kingdom we can become citizens of his kingdom that's good news by grace through faith in Jesus so when we are asking your kingdom come We are saying, Lord Jesus, you are the king. You're the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And I want you to rule and reign over every nook and cranny of my life. And in our family. And in our church family. And in our world. Because so many people are just telling you to shove off or they're ignoring your kingship. And sometimes I resist it. I I like want to stick my fingers in my ears and do my own thing. I want my will to be done on earth as it is in my own mind. And I need to repent of that. I need to bow the knee to you, King Jesus, because you are the good master. You are the one that knows what's best for me. Help me trust you. So seeking first his kingdom is welcoming. It's proactively seeking for Jesus to rule and reign over every nook and cranny of your life. That's what we ought to be preoccupied with each day. And we ought to want to bring that same good master rule and reign Everybody's going to serve somebody. Money's not a good boss. Jesus is a good master. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. We should want other people to experience it as well. That's what it means to seek first his kingdom. How about his righteousness? Well, Jesus has already been talking a lot about righteousness. In the Beatitudes 5, 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He also said... It's kind of sobering in in chapter 5, verse 20. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom. And then he goes on to show what that exceeding the Pharisees' righteousness looks like. Because their righteousness was like a veneer. It was just external religion, but their heart was just full of sin and greed and murder and lust. And Jesus said, I want to make you new and right from the inside out. So not just not committing murder, but dealing with the anger in your heart. Not just not committing adultery, but dealing with the lust in your heart. I want you to love rather than lust. So he goes on in chapter 6 to talk about how and why we give and pray and fast. And he speaks of it in terms of righteousness in verse 1. We do it all not for the praise of people, for them to think we're really impressive and spiritual, but because we treasure God and the reward that only he can give. So he's training us in righteousness. He's showing us what righteousness looks like from the inside out. 
Righteousness is God's value system. Seeking first God's righteousness is actively being trained and shaped by God's word so that God's value system becomes our value system. Again, personally, in our family, in our church, and then we long to see that worked out in society. That's what seeking first his righteousness is all about. The Bible is aimed at training us in this, in this way. 2 Timothy 3, 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Shaping our values so that we live out of God's values, God's economy, God's wisdom. He knows what's best. He knows what's good. So that is how we seek first these things. His righteousness, his kingdom. They become our first and primary preoccupation of each day. We, We welcome his kingdom and his righteousness. We don't resist it or put it off. We seek his kingdom and his righteousness. We don't ignore and neglect it. This is active. It's a matter of prioritization. We don't want to be conformed to this world. We want to be transformed by the renewing of our minds and our hearts. So this passage is not just about not being anxious. You know, Zen detachment. It's about getting concerned and preoccupied with what really matters. And don't miss that promise at the end of verse 33. And all these things, namely what you need, they're going to be added to you. Listen to Romans 8:32. If God did not spare his only son, but willingly gave him up for us all. If he didn't hold back his son, how will he not also together with him give us all things? All things that we need to persevere in this life through thick and thin, through whatever, you know, difficult circumstances that would tend to kick up anxiety. The question is, are we going to trust him for this? If we doubt his promise, we're not going to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness because we're going to be spending too much time hedging our bets. But if we trust his promises, we're going to be freed to focus on what matters. So, brothers and sisters, are we trusting and following Jesus actively, seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness? Did you notice at all the parallels? I mean, I've referred back to it a couple times, the parallels with the Lord's Prayer. Do you see how these are just like hand and glove? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is the prioritization of life. That's where life is really at. That's where our lives really ought to be focused and preoccupied. But of course we have needs. And so we say, give us this day our daily bread and so on. Forgiveness of sins and not being led into temptation. So anxiety is going to threaten to come at us left, right, and center, certainly in these days of pandemic. And listen, Jesus gives us all these good reasons to forsake our anxiety, to repent of our anxiety. Remember back in 417, the first words recorded out of Jesus' mouth as he begins his public earthly ministry, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that's not like a beat you over the head with a two-pound Bible. Repent. It's 
Stop trying to squeeze life out of things that are so small and transient. Trust me. Live for what really matters. Follow me. So repenting is like turning on the faucet of grace. Like, why am I fixated on these things? Forgive me, Lord. Would you please shape my heart to value what you value, to seek what you want me to seek? Jesus doesn't want to beat you down by saying don't be anxious. He doesn't want to make you more anxious by making you more guilty, feel more guilty about how bad you are at not being anxious. He's saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, filled with anxiety. Take my yoke on you and learn from me. You're going to have rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. I want to give you soul rest in the place of anxiety so that you can get on following me, seeking first my kingdom and my righteousness. So let's trust and follow Jesus, brothers and sisters. We're going to pray and then we're going to sing this song to close that we will feast in the house of Zion. You are a good, good Father, Heavenly Father, and we thank you that we are not alone, that we don't have to live like survivors, as if we were orphan street children and everything depended on us. You've given everything in giving your Son And if you didn't spare him, how will you not also together with him give us these things that we need to live? So help us trust you and help us to seek first the first things. In Jesus' name, amen.